0: Amen, amen. Did y'all have a good week this week. Everything go well. It is good to be here. That didn't sound very convincing right there at all, man. I heard oh my, I think at one point. Uh, boy, it's good to be here today. I'm so happy, happy to be here and to be able to continue our study in the Book of Acts. I'd like to encourage you to open your Bibles or get your copy of God's Word out. Go to the Book of Acts, chapter four, and we're going to continue to study our our uh, lessons here in Acts and the Holy Spirit, in the Church. And this morning we're going to look at the Holy Spirit and His work through trials and. Uh, this has been an incredible uh, blessing this week to be able to read this and to study it because uh, how many of y'all here today can say in the past maybe week, two weeks, month, three months that you feel like you've been going through somewhat of a trial in one way or another? Anybody here like that? You don't have to testify and tell me what it is. You've been going through some type of trial that's, that's been something difficult on you. All right, I, I understand and and uh, believe me as a pastor. Uh, We are not immune to trials and things that take place in our life. And it's amazing to me. uh, I believe when you when we get into this study, uh, I had I had just some some struggles personally going on in my life and and things taking place. And and in that uh, in my ministry and what's going on, it was like God knew that I was going to be preaching this sermon this week for Bill. It is awesome. It has been truly a blessing for God to speak to my heart and work in me and strengthen me and encourage me. So today what I want to do is I want to tell you what God has done for me through this chapter of Acts because it is incredible. Some things that are lessons learned and some things thought through. So in the book of Acts here in chapter 4, you remember last week in in the sermon last week, we got our lesson about how... Peter and John go to the temple, and there's a man there that's, that's, been, that's been lame since uh, he was a baby, since he was born. And now he's about 40 years old, and they, they through the power of Jesus Christ, they heal this man. It was awesome. And to see him get up and jump and run around, and everybody looking and seeing what's going on, and it draws a crowd. And, and we saw how God works through his power, works through us, and when we gave us the Holy Spirit and we operate in the power of Jesus Christ that he can do some amazing things. Well, this passage of scripture today is going to focus on what happens when the religious crowd doesn't like when God's at work. Have y'all ever experienced somebody in your life as you have tried to obey and walk with God that claim, they claim to be a religious person and yet you feel like you get more pushback and more discouragement from them than you do from the world and sin and Satan himself. Ever been there? All right. So in this day and age, we still experience discouragement and frustration and, and, One of the things we're going to talk about today is the religious crowd. So please understand, in what I'm saying today, I am not trying to be unkind to anybody in particular. I'm I'm trying to teach and help us to understand in our lives, we need to be careful about getting involved in the religious crowd and stay focused on the relationship crowd. So let's get into this this morning. I'm excited about this. Man, I've been, I could hardly sleep last night just to be able to breathe this message because it's done so much in my heart and my life this week. So Acts chapter 4, let's look at verse 1. The Bible says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through, uh, preached, Through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Now, I want to look at this real quick. And as you know, when I I teach and preach, I like to lay a foundation. So when you look at this passage of scripture, it says that the captain of the temple, if you look there in verse 1, and they were speaking to people, the priest and captain of the temple, and Sadducees came upon them. Now, I thought this was an interesting turn. the captain of the temple. So you say, well, Bill, who is the captain of the temple? Does this have a lot to do with the sermon today? A little bit just for building a cultural aspect to it. So just bear with me, okay? So the captain of the temple was the guy that basically was right underneath the high priest. He was the one who, who more was like, he was kind of like an administrative pastor, kind of what I do here, an executive pastor, who kind of oversaw the operations of everything so the high priest could focus on the sacrifice and what was going to, to ruling the body of elders and, uh, and Sadducees and Pharisees and, and all the hierarchy of the religious system that's involved in Jerusalem. So the captain of the priests filled that role. So I want you to understand that there were some high priests that came in there. The captain of the temple comes in. So there's some pretty high-ranking officials. Again, high-ranking religious people that have shown up because this crowd has been accumulated because people are amazed and at wonder that uh, this guy was healed from his lameness. Now, remember, let's, let's, let's remember what time this is. This is right after Pentecost. There's, all, there's thousands of people in Jerusalem. They're celebrating Pentecost. So they see that uh, the Holy Spirit has come down and these, these uh, disciples are now speaking in the, the native tongues of all the people that are represented here Uh, About 5,000 people have already gotten saved at this point, and they're proclaiming Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is. They're standing on the eastern wall of the temple, and they're declaring who Jesus is, and they go to the crowd. And they tell the crowd, you and your ignorance, you and your foolishness have crucified the Messiah. And they went back to the law and the prophets. And we covered this over the last couple sermons. And they preached how the prophecy and the law laid out what the Messiah was going to be, who he was, where he was going to come from, and what he was going to do. And Peter stands up and proclaims to the, the, the masses all of that information. And then we see that in this passage of scripture, we see a crowd of religious people that begins to accumulate. Now, if you look here in, in verse two, it says that when they came there, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, your your Bible might say grieved. Some people's Bible may say annoyed. Okay. So in this in this context, I want you to understand. That, uh, that as I got to studying this the the words translated either way Now in our culture in American culture when we hear that somebody is grieved we we think of somebody that is just depressed and and overwhelmed emotionally and and, and just struggling uh, but when you hear this in our culture when you say somebody's annoyed, what comes to my mind is somebody that's just Agitated and being persnickety and being short tempered and being just, just kind of just, uh, just someone who is just not being patient, kind, loving, caring. They're just, they're just agitated. They are a person looking for a reason to be upset. Now, in verse two, we see they're greatly annoyed because of the teaching of the people they proclaimed in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, let me explain to you the significance of the disciples preaching Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So do you notice in verse 1, there's a group at this temple now with the captain of the, uh, and the high priest called the Sadducees. Do you see that in the, in the scripture there? Okay, so let me explain to you the significance of the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. This is why they were sad, you see. Okay, so when you look in the word of God and you see that these men did not believe that there would be a resurrection, but yet the disciples are standing on the temple steps and they're declaring that Jesus was the first of the resurrection that was yet to come, that was that was coming up. And they did not like this fact because they did not believe in the resurrection. You say, Bill, what is the significance as to why the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection? This is why. because. If you believe in the resurrection, you believe that those who are loyal to the cause of Christ and to Messiah will one day rule and reign with him. Amen? This is the problem. The Sadducees were a higher, rich, upper class type of people, and they didn't want the thought of them losing their power in the resurrection. So they didn't want to teach the resurrection. They wanted to continue to control people. And they wanted to be able to continue to to have this authority over people without worrying about what would take place in the resurrection. So they didn't want to teach about it. And what happened was in Jewish culture, if you look at the book of Daniel and some other places, you'll see that the resurrection is clearly clearly taught about and talked about. And in that, we see that these Sadducees had developed their line of thinking and because of it, they didn't want to lose their power. Therefore, they don't want people teaching about the resurrection. And now the disciples are standing on the step of the temple and they're teaching that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection that is to come. And this set them off. Listen. Whenever You get involved with a religious person that is about keeping power and authority over people. You are going to run into conflict. If you're a child of God trying to follow the the leadership of Jesus Christ. The disciples are here at the temple. They're doing what they have been told to do, which is go and into all the world and preach the gospel. They're at the temple. Now that they're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, they're doing miraculous things. This one story about this lame man being healed was one of the ones Luke decided to write about in Acts, and he shows the repercussions of people who live in faith in Jesus Christ and obey his word. And in the process, what we see first and foremost is when you live for Jesus Christ and you're sold out for him, it is not accepted very well from the religious crowd because no longer are they the authority in your life. Now Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father are the authority in your life and they don't like that because they can't control you. As you look here in the scriptures, we see here there's a huge difference in a religious person and a relationship with Jesus. By the way, we need to guard against being annoyed with people. Listen. We need to be careful about allowing ourselves to become annoyed or grieved by people who do things that we may not personally prefer or like, but we don't have a Bible verse to say that this is wrong. Amen, amen, amen. Our churches are full of people that have a religious spirit who want to tell everybody else how to live for Jesus. And what we need to do is we need to understand that when people live for Jesus differently than we do, and and there's no Bible verse to say that there's a right or a wrong in it. We need to shut up and let them live. That's the way it is, folks. You know how we reduce conflict in the church? If it's not thus saith the Lord, then be quiet. So as we look in the scriptures and we see here, the religious crowd is one that will stir up problems when they feel like they're losing power. Let's look at verse three. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed. Look at this. This is awesome. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Listen, because the disciples were willing to be obedient to the command and call and power of God, they saw people saved. I'm not talking just one or two. I'm talking, the word of God tells us, over 5,000 thousand. Listen, when you choose to live for Jesus Christ and not get caught up in a religious system, you will affect people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is going to happen because that's what the relationship with Jesus is all about. In our first lesson in the book of Acts, we studied the fact that the Holy Spirit was giving given to us so we'd have power to be able to take Jesus and the gospel to people who need it. That was the whole point of the Spirit of God being given to the church. And we see here that in Acts 4, 3, and 4, that the disciples carried this out. Now, at this point, if you study Scripture, chapter 1 through chapter 4 in Acts, there's an estimated 10,000 people that have come to Jesus Christ, come to faith in Jesus Christ, because of the disciples' obedience to God's instruction from His Word. In verse 5 and 6, we see here on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were the high uh, priestly family. So I want to look at this and, and, and focus on this for just one moment. So would you think that the disciples are in a little bit of a trial here now that they're being put in prison and jail for their declarations of Jesus Christ on the stairs of the temple? Yeah, I would say they would feel like they're in a trial. They don't know what the next day holds. Listen, I've, I've never been to jail, don't want to go to jail. I try to obey the law the best I can. Um, uh, don't follow me in the vehicle, please, and take notes. But um, I, I, do, I genuinely do try to obey the law. Um, like everybody else, we're human and we make mistakes, don't we? Like everybody else, sometimes we may even have a rebellious spirit and do what we want against the law. But the reality is these disciples, they weren't breaking any law. They were trying to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And folks, as we look here, we see that they were held overnight. And as the scribes, these ruling bodies began to gather in Jerusalem this next day, we see here that Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. Now, I want to talk about that for a minute to build a little bit of a culture thing. So let's have a little Bible lesson here. So when you look at this passage of Scripture in, in verses 5 and 6, it talks about the high priest, and it talks about uh, Caiaphas and Annas and Alexander and John. So let's understand that the high priest would serve for a certain length of time, and then typically his son would then serve after him. Now, when you look at the Scriptures here, if you study this out, you'll find out that Annas... This fellow here mentioned in verse 6, he not only served as the high priest, but he had five sons that served after him as high priest. And the current high priest, who was Caiaphas, was his son-in-law. So understand, we we not only have a religious system here, now we have a family system here. Have y'all ever had to get in a fight with a family? All right, so y'all know what I'm talking about here. This wasn't just about a religious system this was a familial issue power struggle control As we look here we see that Caiaphas was currently the high priest in the story that we're studying the high priest he was the president of the Sanhedrin the scribes and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees all these all these ruling bodies that would rule Jerusalem the, the high priest was the one who actually was the president, presided over all of those factions and organized and dealt with them. This was the significance to understand this as to why when Jesus was taken into custody, he was taken to the high priest. Because from there, he ended up going to the court where Jesus had to stand before all these ruling bodies that we see that, that, are, that are here. So the piece of culture to this story is, As John and Peter are put in prison, and now they're brought out to sit before these people. These are people that not but about 60 days, maybe 55 days before this, stood and saw Jesus, the Messiah, stand right before them and claim to be the Son of God. They saw Jesus, the very Messiah, and they they knew the works that he had done and they interrogated him and and they they saw jesus the one that they put the crown of thorns upon his head and they they beat him with the cat of nine tails and they spit on him these are the ones that set all that in motion these are the ones that stirred the crowd up into a father to to scream out crucify him crucify him we want barabbas we want barabbas these are the ruling people in jerusalem Now Peter and John are standing in front of them because they're preaching about the Jesus that these men sentenced to death. As we look here and we see what the word of God tells us, let's get down to verse 7 and 8. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. So they asked him a question. You get the verse 7, he says, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter with the filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. I want to look at this real quick as we continue our study in the Scriptures. And we see Peter's last two public sermons were to the general public. He, he, on the day of Pentecost, he preaches to those people and the, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and they speak in the tongues and languages of the people represented there. And Peter stands there and he declares the, the, that who Jesus is. And we see all these people get saved. We see another discourse at the temple as, as Peter declares to the people who Jesus is in the healing that we saw last week. And then now we see in chapter four, Peter not only is declaring this to the public, now he's standing before these rulers of Israel. It's ramped up a little bit. Now, I want you to look here in verses uh, 7 through 9 and notice something particular. Look at verse 7. By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, you say, what's the significance of them asking this question? This is the significance because... Remember, these are the people who are the religious crowd that want to rule everybody and tell everybody what to do. And this was done without their approval. This healing took place and it didn't involve them. So now they're wanting to know what power or who gave you the ability to do this because we didn't. They want to know because they want to take care of whoever did this. The problem is, as you and I both know, they already took care, thought they took care of the problem when they put Jesus on the cross, but he didn't stay in the grave, did he? Three days later, he rose again. 50 days later, he ascends into heaven, and now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father on high, and he's interceding both for you and for me. And at this point in time, that's right where Jesus is at. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his disciples. And as we do this, as we know from the study, he gave them the Holy Spirit. He gave them the power of God residing in them. Just like he gave us when we got saved. We have the power of God living in us. And they go and they do this. And now the religious crowd, they're frustrated because they didn't authorize this power to be used. But they didn't need to because God was in it. So you look here and you see Peter's last two sermons and now this one before them. They questioned their power, by the way, this is a form of rebellion because their authority is in question here. Listen, guys, word of God says rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. So when we begin to, we, we, we need to understand, we need to be careful when we get on the, the um, mindset of rebelling against anything. We need to be careful. Now, understand, the disciples They're following God. Listen, we're going to get into this in a minute. We need to be careful about rebelling against authority. We need to be careful about rebelling against God's word. We need to be careful about rebelling against the Holy Spirit. Listen, the authority that we have in our lives today as we walk, it is not the church. It is not the pastor. It's the word of God. When we go to the word of God as our final authority, we understand that we have to submit to what the Bible says and we need to live it out. Listen, there's no different set of rules for me than there is for you. Just because I have pastor on my name, it doesn't make me some authority in your life now to tell you how to live for Jesus. I'm going to tell you how the Bible says to live for Jesus. And I'm going to invite you to come along as I try to live what the Bible says for Jesus. But I'm not the one that can tell you this is how you live for Jesus in my own will and in my own spirit. I have to let God do that. Understand, folks, this is You might not like it. It might not be popular in some circles, but the reality is the church has gotten on a bad track of thinking they're the authority over people, and they are not. You know what the church is here for? Not to be an authority. The church is here to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit, to bring people to be reconciled to God. That's why we have a motto here. Our whole vision mission is pointed at leading people to God. That's what it's about. We do it how? How? by learning God's word. Listen, we have no message outside of the Bible. We have no discipleship. We have no discipline. We have nothing outside of the scriptures. So we learn God's word. How else do we do it? Well, Jesus said the greatest two commandments are to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what we do here. We want to love God with everything and we want to love our neighbor. And then the last thing we talk about in our church in our church bylaws and constitution as to what we've laid out to be how we do things here is we we learn the word of God we love God and others and then we live out our faith we don't live out the church's faith we don't live out the pastor's faith we live out our individual faith in the word of God and the love of God and the love of our neighbors we live that out as the word of God instructs us to and we live in submission not to the preacher, not to the church. We live in submission to the scripture. And as we live in submission to the scripture, I will guarantee you this, the Holy Spirit will never guide you to do anything contrary to the word of God. And the disciples, and I say all that to say this, the disciples are standing here in seven, eight, and nine, and they are obeying God they're living in obedience to God in this. And by the way, if you continue to study this same man, Peter, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, But in your heart honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Listen, folks, as we live out our lives, for Jesus Christ, and we live in submission to the authority of the Scripture, we do so looking for opportunities to give people an answer, to tell them why we have the hope that is in us, the joy that is within us. And as we do it, if they, if they ridicule us, if they're unkind to us, if they persecute us, if they put us through trials, we always respond with respect and gentleness. Respect and gentleness. Listen, they are being blinded by the prince of this world. And winning them to Jesus Christ is not going to happen if they just see anger and hate well up in our hearts. And it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm going to step on some toes here. It doesn't matter what church you go to, what religious system you're involved with, or what you think the Christian life is. It matters what the Word of God says and how we flesh that out in the world around us to let people see the hope that lies within us. So as we look here, we get to verse 10. Let it be known, he says here, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and be, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. As you look here and you see what he gives us, Peter, I'm not going to dive into this because I've really dove into this the last messages. Peter goes right, he cuts to the quick, and he says, listen, the Jesus that you crucified, it's in his name and in his power that this guy was healed. Listen, as we take the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, and they're, they're tied up and, and, and they're weighed down by all kinds of sin in this world, when we, when we have the opportunity to share Jesus with somebody and they come to faith in Jesus Christ, they didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ because of you. They came to faith in Jesus Christ because the power of God drew them. The Spirit of God drew them to salvation. Now, you being faithful to declare the message is what God has called us to do. But understand, you didn't save anybody. Jesus did. The Holy Spirit worked. And God did a work in that person's heart. We kind of talked about this last week, and that is one plants and one waters. But what does he say? but God gives the increase. God is the one who draws the salvation. So when we look here and we see Peter directs everything back to Jesus Christ, listen, he wasn't in our power. Listen, we, we, he's saying the disciples, this message, we're not trying to thwart your authority or your religion. All we're doing is obeying Jesus Christ and working in his power and letting him do what he wants to do. And we are here just to be his messengers. So I love this next verse. I spent a lot of time on verse 11. If you've ever studied this, you know where I'm going. Verse 11. He says here, this is what Peter says. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders. You see that word you in the verse? You builders, you religious people, you rulers, which has become the head of the corner. You say, Bill, what's the significance to this? Well, if you study the Word of God, you're going to end up back in Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, there's a verse, the, the Word of God says this, the stone which the builders refused to become the headstone of the corner. This is what Psalm 118.22. Psalm this passage is, it is believed by rabbis in their day back in Psalm, and, 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 and as they studied in the, 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 um, the temple and synagogue, They believed that when Samuel, y'all remember the story about Samuel coming to anoint David to be king? Y'all remember the story? And all David's brothers came in, and they lined up, and Samuel went down the line, and as he went down the line, he's saying, nope, not that one. Nope, not this one. He gets to the end, and he says, God sent me here to anoint a king, and he's not here. Do you have any other children? Oh, yeah. There's this ruddy little Little kid out in the field keeping some sheep for us while we're here doing the actual real work. And Samuel says, Nobody sits down until that young man gets here. And when that young man gets here, Samuel breaks out the oil and anoints David and declares him to be the next king of Israel. But do you know, David's own brothers and father did not want to see him as someone who could be king. He was rejected. He was rejected, and this verse in Psalms refers to that or reflects that, but this goes even deeper. So you don't find this story in Scripture. You have to get into some rabbinical writings to find it, but if you go look at the Targum and and some of the other uh, historical books that give us insight to Scriptures, you'll find out that there's a rabbinical teaching that when Solomon built his temple, 20-ton stones were carved off-site at the quarry. And at the beginning, before they ever started to, to, to do anything with any stones for the temple, they drew up plans and they prepared everything they needed to know exactly where every stone went, what size it needed to be, and how it fitted together. And they, they did not want any tools to be used on the temple grounds, because that's where worship takes place. So all of, the, all of the preparing for these 20-ton stones were done at the quarry. Well, as they, they got the drawings all put together and they were ready to carry out the task of building the temple, the Bible or this, this rabbinical teaching will teach you that or tell you that as they prepared the first stone, they sent that first 20 ton stone to the temple mount to be to, to be utilized And when it got there, the the project manager, I'm going to use American terms here, the project manager on the Temple Mount looked at his blueprints and his plans and looked through everything, and he sent a message to the quarry and said, why did you send me this stone? It doesn't fit in. We don't need this right now. It doesn't fit here. And they, they couldn't figure out where it went, so they put it off to the side, and then they began to bring the other stones in from the temple being built. Well, they went through the process of making all these. Twenty-ton stones, and could you imagine? They didn't have dump trucks, and they didn't have uh, they didn't have big earth movers, and all that. This was all manual labor, moving twenty-ton stones to the temple mouth, lifting them, getting them put in place. They go through all this work, and they get to the very last stone that's needed to be the capstone to the whole project, the cornerstone that that makes everything fit the way it's supposed to and complete. And the and the quarry or, or the 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 project manager on site. Can't, they, he's telling the quarry, I need this stone. And they said, we already sent it. And he says, no, it's not here. We've looked everywhere. There's nowhere to be found. We need you to make this stone. And the guy, the, guy, the quarry said, I'm not making it again. We already did. It. It's done. It's, we gave it to you. And then there's a worker that had been there since the beginning of the temple start. And kind of, you know, one of those guys you don't really pay a whole lot of attention to. He says, you know. Do you remember back when we first started this project? They sent us a stone and it didn't fit into the plan. So we put it off over there. They went over and started digging through the grass and they uncovered it. And here was the stone they needed to be the final touch to what this temple needed to be complete. It was the chief cornerstone that was rejected at the beginning of the project. But when it got to the end, they were willing to accept it because they realized where it fit. Jesus was that cornerstone. If you look here and you see what he says in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. He says, listen, you builders, you leaders, listen, you're the same ones that existed back at the beginning of Solomon's temple when they were building it, that rejected what was needed. And now we're telling you that, that what you need is Jesus. You need to recognize him as Messiah and who he is, but you continue to reject him. As we look here and we see takes place as we study the scriptures, we get to verse 12. Verse 12 says this, neither is there any salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. 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 Listen, I could go on for just a sermon in and of itself on that verse right there. In our society, we think good works is going to save us. We think being nice to people is going to save us. We think giving money is going to save us. We think doing right is going to save us. We think you fill in the blank is going to save us. The reality is this world is going to hell in a handbasket because they won't recognize Jesus Christ as the coming Messiah that's going to rule on the throne of David. He's the one who went to the cross. He's the one who went in the grave. He's the one who resurrected and now rests on high next to the Father. This is Jesus. This is the one we worship. This is the one we adore. This is the one we thank. This is the one we we praise this when we glorify this is the one that we here are here to sing about it's because of him that we are reconciled to the father and we're saying that there's no other name under heaven that deserves any other attention any other consideration any other any other work or glory or, or bow or honor it's Jesus that deserves it and as Jesus deserves this we've got to understand that that we cannot save ourselves by the way this is a hard pill to swallow for some Baptists. Because the fact of the matter is, good Baptists, we think that we have to work to keep our salvation. We've been fooled into thinking we have to dress a certain way, think a certain way, talk a certain way, drink a certain way, eat a certain way, go to church a certain way, do this a certain way, do that a certain way, so we can stay in the graces of Jesus and be saved We don't do anything to stay saved. We don't do anything to be saved. We're saved because of the grace and love and mercy of God. And we accept Jesus as the Messiah, the one who died on the cross for our sin. And when we do that, Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. We are in his hand who is entitled into the father's hand. And no one, not even ourselves can pluck us out of his hand. This is Jesus, the one who saves. Folks, yeah, I'm a little fired up today. I I am excited about the fact that that. Listen, this past week when I was studying this and I'm praying about this and I'm bringing, God is is just working in my heart and life because we get so caught up sometimes in all the things we think we ought to do. And really what God has just called us to do is obey the word and tell people about Jesus. It's that simple. We've turned it into so much more, but it's that simple because There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name. We sang it today. Jesus, Jesus. No other name given among men by which we must be saved. Spelled out, directed very clearly. So, as we look in verse 10, 11, and 12, we come to this conclusion if you go back to Mark chapter 15 verse 10. Why did the religious crowd, why did the high priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, why were all them behaving this way? I want to tell you why. An unsaved Gentile heathen told us why. Mark chapter 15 verse 10 says that Pilate knew that the reason that the the high priests and all these people were against Jesus was because they were envious of him. And by the way, they didn't change their sin. Now they're envious of the disciples because the disciples are doing work and have power in the name of Jesus that the, the hierarchy, these religious people, they never experienced. They followed all these rules, expecting to have the power of God, and what they found out was all the rules are empty. They just continue to make us feel like we're not enough. Listen, the fact of the matter is, let me help you. You aren't enough. I'm not enough, but Jesus is, and that's what the disciples are pointing to here, and Pilate knew because of their envy, and listen, it didn't change. Verse 13 says, now, I have to hurry, man. I still got I got 30 minutes worth of sermon left to do in five minutes. So buckle up. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Listen, when you look at what happens here, they were Galilean. Galileans were not regarded as the high class of society. They were not regarded as ones who were um, uh, civilized. They tended to be very uncultivated and very rude. They were fishermen from Galilee. They were... They were what we would, in our culture, they, we would think that they're backwoods rednecks who, who are just uneducated and unlearned, and this is the way they looked at them. So it perplexed them that the boldness of Peter and John and the clarity in what they were saying. See, the significance in this is that they weren't there representing themselves. They were there representing Jesus, and they were doing it in his power, and through his power, they effectively were communicating what the gospel was. Now listen, when you get to verse 14, it says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. If you you look here in verse 14, it makes very clear there that they beheld this man which was healed. And they could say nothing against it, the Bible says. Listen, how do you argue? How How do you even push against the proof that's right in front of you? They couldn't. They could not deny that a miracle had happened. The issue wasn't that the miracle happened. The issue was who did the miracle. They didn't want the disciples getting credit for the miracle. They didn't want Jesus getting credit for the miracle. They wanted the religious system to get credit for the miracle. And this is where religious systems get off track. Verse 15 through 17. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. We look at verse 15. But when they had... Uh, commanded them to go aside out of the council. They conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done. They can't deny it. By them is manifested all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Verse 17, But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them. And they speak henceforth no more of this man in this name. So, listen, one thing I will tell you about people that want to have control and not let you live your life for Jesus, it's example right here. They don't like what's happening because they're losing control. They don't have the power. They don't have the ability to tell you what to do. And in that sense, these people threaten and begin to try to intimidate and bully God's people, the people that are doing the work of Jesus Christ in that place. Listen, we need to be careful. Be careful about how you treat people that are living for Jesus. Inspect your motive. Inspect your heart. If you're envious, if you feel like you're out of control, it's because you're not in control. Jesus is. Relax. God's at work you think about this. Now, these are people, religious leaders who say they know God, but they don't know who God is. And the Bible speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. You can look it up, 1 Corinthians. These men did not have the Spirit of God dwelling in them that were ruling the people religiously and they were making judgments and they were making decisions based on their flesh and not on the Spirit and the authority of God's Word. So, believer, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you begin to behave this way, who are you following? Listen. I want to tell you. I'm just, can I be honest with you all this morning? I haven't lied to you yet. Don't plan on it. I'm going to be honestly open with you. This is a trap that any spiritual leader can fall into. Because when you begin to walk with God and you begin to see God work in your life, you can fall into this trap of thinking everybody, if they do it the way you do it, they'll 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 be able to experience the same success that you experience. But the reality is. God's path is different for every person. The path of salvation is the same. The path and the journey that we live to carry the gospel to the world is going to be different. We're all going to live different ways. We're all going to go different places. We're all going to do different things. And we have to let people have the freedom of the Holy Spirit to work in their life, to lead them as they go in these ways. It's not that they're wrong. It's just they're different. And diversity in the body is awesome. I bet you you like diversity in your marriage. Hey, Diversity in your marriage, it's great to know that the person that you're married to, they like things that are different than what you like. They bring newness into your life by what they like. There's freshness. And in doing so, it helps your marriage stronger. How many times have you seen in your life, you married couples, people that you know, and it's like the husband and wife are total opposites. Total opposites. And my wife are total opposites. My wife doesn't like talking to anybody. I told you last week, I'll talk to a pole while I'm pumping gas. Okay, We are total opposites. My wife, you go to a restaurant, almost every time she's going to order chicken. Chicken of all things. They got steak and shrimp and lobster and all kinds of stuff. She gets chicken. We are opposites. But I will tell you, my wife brings things into my life that has helped me to appreciate what she loves. And folks, in the body of Christ, we are many members, but we have to understand the diversity in the body is necessary because without diversity in the body we don't reach the people that need Jesus Christ. Listen. We're going to I'm going to close here. I will use what I have for next week. Let me get down to the bottom of this and and, and we'll just uh, we'll just finish up here today. So they go back, uh, they tell they tell Peter and John, they're going to release them. They tell them to to not do this anymore. And they say, "Listen, whether it's right for us to do this or not, we're going to let God be the judge of it. You can read the scripture there. And they go back to the other disciples. And this is, this is everything culminated into this thought today, okay? So if you have a pen and paper and you want to write these, these few things down, I encourage you to do this because this really struck me as everything came together for me this week. How can we live like this today? People who just live in, in and abandon for Jesus Christ and share in the gospel. Let's follow their example when we face trials in that. So what is their example? Let's look at verse 23. And they were released and they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elder said unto them. Verse 24, and when they had heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Let's stop right there. Listen, as you go through trials in your life, as you're trying to live out your faith, and you face a trial and it's overwhelming and you feel like it's going to break you, first and foremost, come to the realization that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He knows right where you're at. He knows right where the person's at that's giving you issues. He knows right where you, your family's at. He knows right where your money's at. He knows right where your health's at. Listen, whatever trial you're facing in your life, whether it's familiar, whether it's financial, whether it's, whether it's, whether it's personal, whether it's work, whatever it might be, know that the trial that you face as you, try to face as you try to live for Jesus Christ, first and foremost, God is sovereign. Amen, amen, amen. He knows what he's doing. He created everything. The second thing we see here, looks at verse 25. Who through the mouth of the father David, you servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? You look at Psalm chapter two or Psalm two. It's not really chapters. It's Psalm two, verse one and two. Listen, it's not just about recognizing God's sovereign. It's about knowing God's word. If you want to know the next step for you in your life spiritually, it's not about, it's not about coming to the preacher. It's not about coming to the church. It's about coming to the word. It's about knowing God's word. And they recognize this in David and the Spirit giving him what to say. The third thing we see here, verse 26, 27. And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against their holy servants, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Look at verse 28. To do whatever, I underline this in my Bible, your hand. And your plan had predestined to take place. Listen, God is a sovereign creator. You need to know God's word. And the third thing we see here, you got to accept God's plan. It's God's plan, not your plan. God has a reason for doing what he's doing. And even in God's plan, you look in verse 28, and it was God's plan in verse 27, 28, that Jesus be presented to Pontius Pilate, that Jesus go through the trial, that Jesus go to the cross. All these things that happened. Listen, you say, if I would just live better, these trials wouldn't be here. Baloney, Jesus was perfect, and he ended up on a cross. Don't think if you're perfect, everything goes away. That's not how life works. When Adam sinned in the garden, it destroyed everything. Except the fact that God has a great plan and he's, work, he's working in your life. He's working in my life. How about the next thing? Realize everything we need we find in God. <laughs> Verse 29 and 30. "And now, Lord, this is how they're praying. Look upon their threats and grant to your servant to continue, Lord Jesus say here, to speak your word with boldness. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders and perform through the name of, what does it say there? Your holy servant. Listen, realize everything we need, we find in God. To face the trial you're facing, to face the difficulty you're facing, to deal with what you're going through in your life, everything you need is in God. It's Him. The last thing, Look at what happened in verse 31. When they recognized sovereign creator, accepted the word of God, accept the God's plan, realized everything we need, we find in God. Look at the experience that they have. In verse 31, they experienced God's presence. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Folks, I'm asking you today, When was the last time you recognized these things from the word of God in your life? And when was the last time that your life was shaken because of the presence of God and your realization that going through this trial is just a distraction from who I see God to be? Folks, I want to encourage you today. I don't know what trial you're facing. I don't know what you might be going through. But these men were going through something that was very life and death. And as they went back to their fellow believers and they began to pray together, they all in one accord became focused on who God is, on the sovereignty, on the word, on the plan, on, on God being able to work and everything, being in him. And then they were able through that to experience the presence of God in their life. And it shook them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for how you love. God, thank you for the spirit of God that resides in us. Thank you for the work you've done in my heart and life this past week, just preparing and studying and reading and getting into the scriptures about this. And Father, thank you for the strength that you've given me in this to know that you, you are present in my life. I pray that every believer, whether watching at home or here today in this place, would take the scriptures that we see here today and apply it to their lives so that they too can be shaken and fresh and anew experience the presence of God in their life. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Maybe you're here today. You've never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. You hear me talk about the death, burial, and resurrection, and Jesus now on the right hand of the Father. You've never looked at Jesus as the Messiah and accepted Him to save you. Listen, today, while you're here in this place, you can bow your head right where you're at, and you can just say, dear God, forgive me for my sin. Come into my life. Talk to Him. Tell Him. Tell Him that you know that you're not worthy to go to heaven, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, that you can have salvation, and you want it. You're going to give your life to him. Listen, right where you're sitting today, whether you're at home, whether you're in this place, you can pray and ask Jesus to do that right now. Maybe you're here today and you say, Bill, I want to be shaken. I want the presence of God to be real in my life and I want to experience that. Maybe you're going through something right now and you are experiencing that and he is shaking you and he's molding you and there's stuff going on and you see it happening. Praise God for that. Stay in it and don't lose faith. Don't get distracted. Maybe right now where you're sitting, you need to pray and ask God, just to continue to work in your heart and life, to make his presence known and for you to focus on Jesus Christ and share in the gospel. Don't get caught up in all that stuff and get distracted by it. Focus on Jesus is the, is the only name that people need to worry about knowing and how to be saved. Listen, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. You do business with God as he sees fit in your life. I need I need Thee, oh, I need Thee, every hour I need Thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I call to Thee. Amen, amen, amen. Thank God for His word. Listen. Before we get dismissed today, I did want to mention something to you. Many of you uh, have been here for some time. You've been members of the church here for, for quite a while. And you may remember our, we had a worship pastor here, associate pastor. His name was Steve Robertson. And uh, Steve is in the hospital in very, very serious condition. And he's trying to battle COVID. Um, he, is, he is really, really fighting. And uh, I know as a church, listen, there are many people in our church that love Steve dearly. And, man, he's just a man of God. He and Irene are godly people, and they are just committed to the cause of Christ. And, and, listen, I believe today it would be appropriate for our church to pray for Steve. And I want to remind you to pray for him as you go throughout your week that God would do something miraculous in his life and uh, that that he, his lungs are not wanting to heal from the COVID, and he's just really, really having a bad time with it. Him and his family need prayer. So this morning as we as we close our service, I just want to take a moment and pray for Steve as we're, as we're dismissed, all right? Father, we come before you today and we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ in the cross of Calvary. And as, Father, we, we come before you and as we close our service of worship out today, we bring Steve before you. God, I know just like you healed the blind man, you can heal Steve as he sits in that hospital today. If it's your will, the Spirit of God has power to stretch beyond anything we could ever imagine. I pray that as the doctors treat him, that the medications that they're giving him would that his body will respond well to them. I pray that we'd see something spectacular take place and you would just just work in his life right now. We're asking we're begging God that you would intercede to help him. But God, I also know that we are willing to accept your will and no matter how you want to deal with His health. God, thank you for the time together today. Thank you for being able to worship you. As we go out of this place, help us to take Jesus where we're going, and give it to the people that need him around us. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name.